We do begin this morning a new section within the sermon. We leave behind Jesus' teaching on hypocrisy. Though with that being said, there is a line of continuity from the previous text. You'll remember in the three examples Jesus gives as he teaches on the issue of hypocrisy, that of giving to the needy and praying and fasting, the notion of a reward is prevalent in all of them. And we noted last week just how difficult it can be at times for Christians to consider that when they step into glory, they'll be rewarded. Well, that idea is carried on into this text as Christ commands us to seek the reward. Just in case we were in any doubt about the truth of us receiving when we get to glory, in this text, Christ actually commands us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. If anyone ever thought that Christianity was a religion of poverty, they could not have been more mistaken. Our Lord commands us to amass heavenly wealth. Our deficiency is often not that we desire too much, but that our desires are too weak. Christ wants for us to desire heavenly treasure. And to help us in this way, he teaches. He teaches, commanding that we should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, not on earth. He shows us that such an orientation can only ever flow out of single-minded devotion to God. And he gives a warning that shows there can be no room for any other masters. They're the three points that Christ makes in this text. You probably are familiar with each part of it. probably know what Christ taught here in isolation, and my concern today is to bring it all together and to show the connection of thought across these verses. Christ commands us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. He shows that that orientation, that disposition, that way of living can only ever come out of a single-minded devotion to God and that there can be no room for any other master. So we'll work through the text in order. I pray that God would increase today our desire for treasure in heaven, increasing our devotion to him, and releasing us from any allegiance we might have to any other masters. Beginning then with our pursuit of heavenly treasure, Verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Again, there is a, a connection with the previous text. As previously he had taught many, many times, there is a reward for the Christian. And here he shows us that we need to seek the right reward, whereas previously he was concerned with motive now, in these verses, he wants to ensure that we are seeking the right reward, the right treasure, specifically not a treasure that is to be found on earth. Don't seek earthly treasure, 
because those treasures are destroyed by moth and rust, and they're taken by thieves. And this well-known saying would have been felt keenly by Jesus' disciples, his original hearers, because in the first century there would be no banks. They couldn't look up their bank balance on any particular website. They simply kept items of monetary value in their homes. Anything of any value would be hidden away in their homes And so they would know firsthand the experience of those items being destroyed by moth or by rust or even being taken by a thief. The theology that underpins this verse is fairly self-evident. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. It's a foolish thing to do because those treasures are fleeting. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, or more fundamentally, don't allow the affections of your heart to be anchored to the treasures of earth, because the treasures that are found in this life are only ever fleeting. Don't desire, don't allow the affections of your hearts to be anchored to material possessions, because they won't last for very long. Is that to say that it's wrong to save, to put aside, to have any interest in material wealth? And the answer, of course, is no. It's not wrong to save. It's not wrong to be good stewards of that which God has entrusted to us. We think about other scriptures that speak positively to that premise. In 2 Corinthians, Paul commands parents to save for their Children, that's good stewardship of our money. In 1 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy that people, church members, are to have a care for those in their family. And by inference, you think just a few chapters from here, Jesus is going to commission his disciples and send them out with an itinerant kind of lifestyle, take only the staff and the cloak on your back, in order for that itinerant lifestyle to work, they will need to depend upon those who have chosen not to lead that kind of life, who have stored up and are able to give. So we know that here this is not a prohibition absolutely against any kind of saving or having of material possessions. The key idea is that of treasuring. Literally, verse 19, do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth. He uses that idea twice in the same verse. Literally, do not treasure for yourselves treasures on earth. It is the treasuring of earthly treasures that Jesus prohibits because they're fleeting. Now, why would anyone treasure a fleeting treasure? Well, it may be born out of anxiety. We don't trust that our loving Heavenly Father hears us. We don't believe that our loving Heavenly Father knows our needs. We don't believe that He has heard our prayer in chapter 6, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. 
We don't believe that God has heard that prayer and that he knows our needs. And so we have an anxiety for material possessions and we cling so tightly to them because we do not trust that our loving heavenly father is going to provide today's bread. And that clinging to a material possession very quickly becomes a treasuring of that possession. Or, if not born out of anxiety, perhaps we treasure a fleeting treasure based out of ignorance. Ignorance meaning we have perceived there to be a value in the earthly treasure that it does not inherently possess. We have believed a lie looking at an earthly material treasure, believing that it has a value that in fact it does not have. We look at the brand new car or the new home or whatever it is, and we think, if only I could have this, then I would be happy. We're prone to believe that lie over and over and over again with just about any earthly treasure that is set before us. Last week, you'll remember, I noted the happy providence of God in leading us to study the topic of fasting the Sunday after Thanksgiving. I think the same providence shows up again today as we think about earthly treasures entering into the Christmas season, a time of year when we are most prone to believe the lie that earthly treasures will make us happy. Not that long ago, one of my children asked me, Dad, on Christmas Day, do you see greed on our faces? I thought, okay, we're about to have a serious conversation. (laughs) And I thought about that question. I really appreciated the question. Do you see greed on our faces? And I said, honestly, I don't think I do. But here's what I do see. Often, I see a disappointment. I see a, a flatness. So they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, there's been this evident anticipation for the day when we'll get to open our presents, and perhaps you might know or have a sense of what's inside one or two of them, and you're longing for that special thing. And what I see is that you open the present, and maybe within minutes, if not hours, or if not a few days, certainly within weeks, there is a realization that it is not bringing you the happiness that you had hoped. And that is not in any way, a criticism against my children, we are even more guilty of pursuing such lies. We, who have lived out the lies so often, are still so prone to indulge in it, looking at the new thing, the new opportunity, the thing that we don't have, and allowing ourselves to believe that is where our happiness is to be found. We have failed to heed the biblical teaching that it genuinely is more blessed to give than to receive. You see, very close to Jesus' warnings in this text is the implication that by treasuring fleeting treasures, you are implicitly lacking generosity. 
in order to treasure the fleeting treasures, there is necessarily a lack of generosity in your life. There is a grabbing onto and a holding onto material possessions. And we have failed to learn the biblical truth that it is always more blessed to give than to receive. We give of our time and we find blessing. We give of our energy and we find blessing. We give of our talents and we find blessing. We give of our possessions and there is joy to be found. But we fail to heed that truth persistently. And so it leads to what Christ is saying not to do here, a treasuring up for ourselves of fleeting earthly treasures. Christ desires our flourishing. All the way through this sermon, his desire is to lead his disciples in a path of flourishing. Christ is not a killjoy. He is not against us. He is for us. And the call to self-denial is not a call to forsake all pleasures. So many Christians misunderstand this. The call to self-denial that is inherent to the Christian life is a call to maximize your pleasure. Because by forsaking earthly pleasures, you are prioritizing heavenly treasures. Now, in order to do this, and that's exactly where Christ goes, verse 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth, but the contrast, verse 20, do, do lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where there are no moths and no rust and no thieves. In order to do this, it also necessitates a level of trust. Trust in our heavenly Father. A trust that he knows what we need and that he hears us. A trust that he is indeed a loving, heavenly father. If you ask for bread, he will not give you a serpent. If you don't have it, then it is not needed. You have to trust that God knows and that he knows best. Do you believe that if you don't have it, it is because he has deemed that you do not need it? It also necessitates a trust, a belief that your acts of service are meaningful. You see, what Jesus does in these two verses is he lays out for us a means by which you would lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There is a depositing scheme that he gives to you a way of amassing great wealth in glory. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So how do you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven? By inference, paying attention to the context. It is exactly what Jesus has just taught us to do, those acts of service, giving to the needy, verse 2 and following, praying, verse 5, fasting, those being three examples that Jesus gives of what a religious devoted life looks like. So we can say the way in which you lay up for yourself treasures in heaven is through acts of service. Done with the right motive, you are depositing into the eternal bank account. 
And the trust that is demanded from you is a belief that your acts of service, however meaningful they may seem, however unnoticed they are in the life of the church, are genuinely depositing for yourself a heavenly reward. You stack the chairs. No one notices. You sweep the floor. No one notices. You teach the children in Sunday school. No one is thanking you. You labor to make sure the campus is functioning and able to serve the body. No one is noticing. You have to trust that your heavenly Father sees and is storing up in return a great reward for you. And understand the exchange rate is out of this world. He will reward you far, far, far more than you could anticipate makes me think some years ago of an exchange that we did from one side of the Atlantic to the other. We have obviously a bank account back home in the UK and as we were going through seminary I would periodically transfer money from one account over to our American account. We had a few families back home who were generously supporting us and so from time to time we would transfer this money over and it wasn't huge amounts and it was a regular transfer and I wouldn't think of when it was just as needed I would affect the transfer and then as the Lord made clear that we would be staying here long term we had a very small house back home that we first lived in when we were married and I said to Laura, I think it would be wise to sell this house now and to transfer the money over to see what we could possibly buy here. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, relatively speaking, a larger sum of money. So I was speaking to the account manager on the phone on a daily basis. Should we transfer today? And he would say, well, you can. Here's the exchange rate. And then he would say something like, but you need to think carefully because later on today, the prime minister is going to make a speech in the House of Commons and whatever he says could cause the exchange rate to drop. I mean, he was opening up my eyes to a world that I knew nothing about. What this person says before the nation affects how many dollars land in my account. And so we'd hold off, and then the next day I speak again, he says, you can transfer today, but you've got to be careful, because later on today, this is going to happen. And that might affect how much you get, and, and it was a very stressful time, and at some point, we just had to hit the transfer button and trust the Lord with that. You need to understand, the only thing that will affect how great a treasure you receive is your readiness to trust the Lord. He has already shown his great love for you by sending his son to die on the cross. There is the display of his love for you. You don't need to doubt that. His love is steadfast. It doesn't vary each day depending on how well you do. 
You are a recipient of his love by his grace, and his love is fully towards you in so much as you are in Christ. It is not changing. And so the only question is how much you are willing to trust him to take Christ at his word and to live a life that honors him, knowing that he sees and will reward abundantly. The exchange rate is out of this world and he desires for you to step into glory and receive a treasure that is far, far, far greater than you can possibly understand. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined what God has stored up for those who love him. You rehearse that verse every single time you have an opportunity to serve. Every time you have an opportunity to pray for a brother or sister, when there is an opportunity to deny yourself food and consecrate a fast, when there is an opportunity to give out of what God has given to you, say to yourself, now I have seen, nor ear heard, nor heart imagined what God has stored up for those who love him, and I will now serve joyfully. That is how you store up for yourself a treasure that is not fleeting, but is in heaven. Now, how do we go about living a life that has this kind of orientation? Jesus teaches us that in the following verses. Now, he already has hinted at it in verse 21. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He shows our laying up of treasure, whether it be on earth or in heaven, is a heart issue. And certainly in verse 21, it reads as if Jesus is teaching your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It seems like he's saying your heart follows your treasure. And that's true. Your heart does follow that which you decide to treasure. If you want to love your wife more, tell her you love her. Your heart will follow your treasure. It is also true that your treasure follows your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Scripture affirms both. Your heart follows your treasure and your treasure follows your heart. We might say in verse 21, Jesus shows us that the heart reflects and affects your orientation. Where your treasure is reflects and affects the orientation of your heart. And so as he introduces us to this underlying principle in verse 22 and 23, he then explains how it is you might live a life whereby you are consistently laying up for yourself treasure in heaven. He says the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad or evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now these seem perhaps like confusing verses. It's not perhaps immediately apparent what Jesus is saying here. He changes the metaphor from that of treasure and the heart to that of the eye and 
light and lamp. But there is a connection. There's a relationship between what Jesus has just said in 19 through 21 and what he says here. And just a few points of explanation might make clear what is the relationship between the two sayings. First of all, when Jesus says, I, in this verse, he's not speaking about the physical I. He's speaking about what we might call the mind's eye, your apprehension of the world around you, even the way in which you think, the way in which you see and understand. Secondly, it is not simply speaking about what we take in. We tend to think about the eye as that which takes in light, but notice what Jesus says is the eye is the lamp of the body. This reflects much more a first century understanding of the eye. The eye projects light. The lamp of the body is that which guides it, which directs its step, and the eye projects that light. It gives and it guides. So the, the mind's eye, our apprehension, our understanding of the world is that which guides us. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, when Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, that word there could be translated as single. Healthy is maybe not the best translation. If your eye is single, or even if your eye is whole. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you remember over the last few chapters, you'll notice that this idea of wholeness, completeness, single-mindedness has been a recurrent theme in Jesus' preaching. Previously, he had taught us, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And there we noted what Jesus was teaching is you must be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. It's not exactly the same word in view here, but there's definite overlap. And that verse, verse 48 of chapter 5, formed a mirror image to when Jesus said, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees within the context of Jesus saying, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to perpetuate the law. I've not come to do away with it but I'm wholly in line with God's plan. You might say Jesus is our example of single-mindedness. Jesus is our foremost example of what it means to be whole, in accordance fully with God's purposes. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that his disciples need to have an apprehension of the world that is fully in line with God's or that they must be single in all that they do. He is teaching that we must be single-minded in our devotion to God. As disciples, we cannot be distracted. We can't be looking elsewhere. The eye is the lamp of the body, and your eye, your mind, your heart, all that you think and are and do needs to be single. It needs to be fully in line with God. Or, to put it another way, what Jesus is teaching here is that you need to get all of who you are under all of who God is. 
to render your eye as healthy is to get all of who you are under all of who God is. Last week, we thought for some time about fasting. Talked about what it was, what prompts a fast, when you might do it, why you should do it. And I was speaking just the following day about the sermon with some folks, and I I said the tension I felt in that text was on the one hand to deal with the topic of fasting and to talk about it. It's not often spoken about in the church today. I wanted to talk about what fasting is, and yet, and the tension I felt was that the text fundamentally is not about fasting. Fundamentally, the text is about hypocrisy. Fundamentally, the text is about motive. Fasting was one of three examples that Jesus gave for what a devoted life would look like. In the same way, this text puts forward the issue of material possession and money. That is just the tip of the iceberg. If we don't get beyond a simple consideration of what we are doing with our money and what our heart's affections are like towards our money, we have missed the point. Jesus is exhorting the only way that you can live in such a way that you are laying up for yourself treasures in heaven is to first and foremost have a single-minded devotion towards God. See, we don't talk often in this church about money. This text is so instructive for how we think about money. We want to be transparent. We put our budget before you every year. We ask for your affirmation. We hold sessions where you can scrutinize anything you see on that budget. We pass around an offering every Lord's Day, and that's part of our worship, is to give to the Lord and His work. Beyond that, we don't talk an awful lot about money, because money's not the point. The point is, and our concern, is your apprehension of and your devotion to an almighty, sovereign, loving, heavenly Father. The point and the concern every Lord's Day is how it is you are thinking about God and what it is you are doing with your life to show your love for Him. If you want to be rich, you need to stop thinking about money. You realize some of the poorest people in this world are those that are most consumed with money. If you want to be rich, you need to start thinking about Christ. You start gazing upon Him and delighting in your Lord and Savior. Then, with a heart that is single, that is devoted unto Christ, you will give and you will serve and you will fast and you will pray. They are not burdens to the person who has a deep affection for Christ. You will give and you will serve and you will pray and you will give and you will serve and you will pray as an outworking of your love for Jesus. For as much as you focus on treasure, you will not be ready to serve him. If you are not thinking about Christ, it does not surprise me that you do not pray. 
and that you do not fast and you are not ready to serve and nor do you give. You see the logic that Christ makes so plain here. The I is that which guides. Your mind, your heart, your whole being, where that is will lead to what it is you treasure, where you are laying up treasure. And he says, if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If your eye is not single, if that single-minded devotion to God is lacking, but your eye, verse 23, is evil. Just notice the parallel thought there. Christ says you've got two options. Either, verse 22, your eye, heart, mind, being is single. Or, verse 23, literally, your eye is evil. Here's where you see just how corrupting anything other than single-mindedness can be. Christians, born again, love the Lord, are allowing themselves to be consumed by that which is not of the Lord, that is not part of their devotion to God. Their eyes distracted. Jesus says it's evil and your whole body is full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? So the option is to be distracted or to be single. And it is the single-minded devotion that readily lays up for itself treasures in heaven. Now to conclude and to make sure that we have understood the point Jesus gives a warning. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. So Jesus is laying out these two masters, and he says you're going to love this one and and not love, hate this one, or you'll be devoted to this one and despise this one. As a matter of fact, he says, it is impossible to serve both. Again, you probably know these words well. My concern is that you understand them within the context. Jesus wants you to flourish. He is for you and not against you. He wants for you to lay up treasures in heaven. How can you live a life where you are depositing over and over again into the heavenly bank account? The answer is you have to be single-minded in your devotion to God. Be single-minded in your devotion to God and there will be a lifestyle that readily emanates from that devotion whereby you are not consumed with earthly treasures. And just so we don't think that Christ's words are light or peripheral, he finishes with a warning. You can't serve two masters. And I think we often misuse this verse. An opportunity comes along for a part-time job, perhaps in addition to your main line of work, and you see it as a time that you could use to earn some more income, but then you counsel yourself and say, well, 
Jesus did say, I can't serve two masters. So you turned down the job, you missed the opportunity, and of course you absolutely could have taken that job. Or your 10-year-old says that they want to pursue soccer and piano. You say, well, Jesus did say you can't serve two masters, so you need to pick one. (laughs) And so you deprive the child of a chance to be (laughs) well-rounded. We can do many things at once, and that's not what Jesus is teaching us here. The verb, to serve, could readily be translated, you cannot serve as a slave two masters. You cannot serve as a slave, two masters. A slave in the first century is not someone whose work is contracted. They don't have hours that they keep and then time when they're off, they are wholly owned. A slave in Jesus' day is wholly owned. You cannot be wholly owned by two masters, says Jesus. In Milton's Paradise Lost, he personifies mammon. The traditional translating, you cannot serve God and mammon, meaning material possessions. And Milton personifies mammon as a a fallen angel. And I think that's a helpful way for us to occasionally think about our material possessions. Not that they are inherently evil, but that they can have a great power over you so that you are enslaved to them. Your material possessions can very quickly begin to instruct you. They can command you. They can tell you not to be generous to others. They can tell you to stop wasting so much time with the people of God. They can tell you to spend more time on thinking how you might amass more money. You can very quickly be answering to another master. And Jesus says, it is impossible to answer to money and to God. The call is to heed the economics of the gospel. One that begins with the reception of Jesus' grace. He who was rich, for our sake, became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. It begins by acknowledging the grace that Jesus makes available at the cross of Calvary. And as you receive that grace, you then walk in it, serving God single-mindedly, laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Would you pray with me now to close? Our Father, we give you thanks for this teaching of Christ this morning. We give you thanks that Christ instructed us, commanded us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We are amazed to think your design is to reward us when we step into glory. We cannot fathom how rich our reward is, but we trust that you see every act of service, every prayer offered, every fast consecrated, every offering given, every act of service is seen by a loving Heavenly Father 
and is rewarded. Keep us back from the temptation to lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Father, I do pray that our devotion to you would be single-minded. I pray that our eye would be healthy. Single-minded devotion to you, to your Son, to the truth. And issuing from that life, Father, that there would be a readiness amongst us to serve, to give, to love, to deny of ourselves. Out of our devotion to you, there would be a readiness to lay down our lives for the sake of others. Trusting that one day, really soon, We will stand before Christ and receive our reward. Help us to heed the warning that Christ gives this morning. Show us where there are two masters in our lives. Give us the grace to let go, to be committed to you. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning that is not in submission to Christ at all. Pray for those amongst us that don't know the sin-atoning worth of his blood. We ask that they would repent of their sin and trust in him for salvation. they would receive the grace that issues from the cross and enter into a life of service that is single-minded in its devotion to you. Lead us all in this way, we ask in Jesus' name.